So a couple days ago, I had a thought. <clears throat> it happens occasionally, but this, this may have been an original one, which I was, didn't want to miss, so I wrote it down. I found it's next to impossible to have an original thought with so many people thinking. I like that one. So you got seven billion people thinking, what are the chances? My Facebook page is doing well. I have a lot of people following me. And I got a comment the other day that I just loved and wanted to share with everybody. And my response. Hey, Mr. Kusala. I've listened to just about all your podcasts, and I really like them. I just want to let you know about a trend I've noticed. It's that you are repeating common themes and ideas over and over. <laughs> if you continue this trend, I will still listen to your podcasts. All I'm saying is that you might want to broaden your horizons as far as your podcast discussions are concerned. Good luck. And so my response was, yes, I think your observation is correct. In the 45 years that the Buddha gave Dharma talks, he only spoke about two things. <laughs> Why we suffer and how to end suffering. I'm doing my best to stay on message. <laughs> so it, it can be... A dilemma if you give a lot of talks. I, I sometimes give five, six talks a week. And, and oftentimes, I want to be creative and have a unique talk each time, but it's almost impossible. So it reminds me of the, the old days when you had vaudeville and then the new days when you have sitcoms. So in vaudeville, what you do is you create an act. And you take the same act and do the same thing in all these different towns. And people would applaud and be really happy that you showed up, but they'd never see your act twice. And then you come to TV with sitcoms and you find you need new stuff each week. And you have 14 or 15 writers in there working hard to create new stuff. And we just consume it at such an amazing rate that it's difficult to be unique and have new things to say and do and think about. So I, I have given up trying to be uh, unique in the sense that I'm going to have a syllabus each time I talk, but simply talk about stuff that I've been thinking about and wondering about, and perhaps have an opinion about. So a couple weeks ago I was in Santa Monica and I was talking at Against the Stream and it went pretty well. And I recorded it, and it's on, the, it's on my web page, and it's on my podcast page. And, and there's like a thousand people that have listened to that talk. So it must have been, it must have been, you know, triggered something in people. And they must have shared it. And, and so this is, I'm going to give you just sort of a, a little insight into what I talked about and, and, and why it might have been accepted with such enthusiasm. You know, we all have to die, and we're, it's just a matter of time. And, and in August, the full moon day of August, 
there's a Mahayana tradition, celebration, memorial called Ulambana. Ulambana happens on the full moon day of August. And if you recall, this last full moon day was the great giant big moon. So everybody's really excited about that. And a bunch of Buddhists were celebrating dead people. And it's sort of like Halloween, I suppose, in a way, or the Day of the Dead in Mexico. But it's like really important to remember them because there are so many of them. In a hundred years, there are going to be seven billion people dead. Where are we going to put them? Are we going to bury all of them? And of course, in their place, there'll be like 12 billion. And then another hundred years, they'll be dead. And this world will be getting bigger and bigger and bigger because we keep putting people underground. We're going to have a huge earth one day filled with a bunch of dead people. So Ulambana is to remember and celebrate the ancestors. And if you ask a Christian who the first family was, they might say Adam and Eve. And if you ask a a Buddhist who their original ancestors were, they would say they didn't have one because there was no beginning. There have always been ancestors. And because of all those ancestors that walked before us, we're here today. And in the West, we don't pay too much attention to all the dead people because we have so many things we like to do. But in the East, they have altars and pictures and ceremonies to stay connected, which I think is really wonderful. And in our Ulambana ceremony at our little center down the street, we cut bamboo and we put it by the front door. And as the wind rustles through the bamboo, it said that sound catches the attention of the spirits that haven't been reborn yet. Now, can you imagine being on earth and not having a body? How boring would that be? What would you do? Where would you go? There'd be nobody to talk to, nothing to eat. And so what we would do is encourage all those spirits and spirit energy to be reborn, and we'd give them a Dharma talk on how to get reborn. Now, it may sound fantastical that that people in 2014 do that kind of stuff. And I know if you don't come to Buddhism as a religion, but come to it as a therapy or a lifestyle or a philosophy, you may think that the religious Buddhists are a little bit odd in wanting to come in contact with all those dead people who may or may not exist at all. And yet, there's something true and authentic about it because a lot of them don't seem to go away. If you've lost people in your life and you mourn them because they are no longer here, I bet if you listen carefully, you can still hear them in your head. I can still hear my mother telling me to take out the trash. She's going to be in there until I go even though she's no longer with us, and and happily in Lutheran heaven. But as I thought about the dead people, I thought about the fact that none of us knows when it's going to happen. 
a friend of mine just passed away a couple weeks ago. He was a Buddhist scholar, 85 years old. He had more energy than anybody I've seen at any age, and he just loved to think and write and talk about Buddhism. He wrote over 50 books on Buddhism. He could give a Dharma talk about any subject, any time. All you had to do was ask him. No notes, no references, bang. He went to Australia to set up a Buddhist college, and he's flying back, and he died in his sleep. Now, I heard some groans, but you know what? Can you think of a better way to go? Man, he had a hot dog, a little beverage, laid down to sleep, and he died. Now, we can't blame the hot dog. He was 85. And then other people die in horrific ways. You know, horrific ways over long periods of time. And I was listening to NPR just the other day, and a doctor who is a heart and lung specialist said, death is one of the hardest things anyone is ever going to do. So I thought to myself, well, how do we have a good death? And it seems in Buddhism the way to have a good death is to have a good life. And then how do we have a good life? What is the most important thing in our life? What determines our quality of life? And what is the one thing that migrates to the next lifetime? That's the thing we should be most concerned about, I suppose. It's that thing that migrates. It's that thing that will be reborn. Hmm. So as I was talking about this, I reflected on a book I am now reading for the third time called The Dancing Wooly Masters by Gary Zukov, spelled W-U-L-I, Wooly Masters. He also wrote Seed of the Soul and a few other books. And this is an introduction to quantum physics for somebody like me who knows nothing about advanced math or science, but finds it interesting nonetheless. And he explained about finding the smallest of the small. And he said at one time it was atoms, and then it was protons and neutrons, and then it was quarks. And then they got this really good microscope, and they found the smallest of the small, which turned out to be nothing more than a wave particle. And that got me to thinking. I said to myself, isn't that interesting that a wave particle happens at exactly the same time simultaneously? And depending on how you're looking at it, you would either see the wave or the particle, but not both. Okay, so this is how my mind works. I'm thinking the Buddha was sitting underneath the tree 2,600 years ago, and he achieved nirvana. And he did something that others hadn't done. He saw the wave and not the particle. Because everybody else was talking about the particle, the one, the great one, the hierarchy of particles, Brahma, the creator particle, was on top. We come to the people of the book. Who do they talk about? They talk about the particle, the one God. What do Buddhists talk about? They talk about the wave. They can't find the particle. All they see is the wave. What is the wave? How is it represented? It's represented as a Nietzsche, impermanence, the river of change and flux. So the Buddha woke up to Nirvana 2,600 years ago 
and said, I have found the truth, and the truth, as far as I can tell, is the wave. Wow, cool. So now I'm thinking, okay, so the wave is going to migrate, not the particle. Because when the Buddha looked carefully inside to see what made him up, he never found the soul, which really freaks a lot of people out because people are supposed to have souls. But the Buddha said, well, I looked really carefully, and nothing seems to be permanent and independent and apart from everything else. All things seem to be interconnected and interdependent and always changing. So there may be, in fact, a soul, but it isn't who you are. You seem to be more of the river than the rock. You seem to be more of the process than the event. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, so now we have this process that's going to be going from this lifetime to the next lifetime, this sort of wave river thing. And, and particles, not for us. For my mom, she had the particle, and she went to visit the other particles. And it was nice, and she was happy about that. So then I thought, okay, so what's going to go? It's going to be the karma. It's going to be the cause and consequence of everything we thought, said, and did. This ever-changing flux and flow of cause and consequence. And if you look at Theravada Buddhism, the early Buddhism, they say to you that when you die, your karma will migrate to the next lifetime. But you won't go, and that just makes people feel so uncomfortable that they don't get to go. But they never got to go anywhere, because by the time they became somebody, they became somebody else. It never stopped for them. There's no plateau that we reach as a human and say, this is who I am. The Buddha said we're in a constant state of becoming something else all the time, and it never stops. So we migrate into the next lifetime, and we need two things for it to work, and we need a sperm and an egg. And apparently with 7 billion people, we got plenty of those. And bang, the new life starts again consisting mostly of old karma. But as soon as you start to think, speak, and act, you are now changing that flow of karma and giving it a value or a quality, skillful or unskillful. More suffering or less suffering. And some people start their life off with really good karma and screw it up along the way. And some people start off with the worst karma and end up with the best karma. And that leads me to believe that nothing is predestined in Buddhism. That in every moment we're awake and making a choice, we can make the choice to be more skillful, to have a better outcome. We don't have to settle for what it is now, because now is what determines what happens next. I thought, that is so cool. So now we have all this karmic energy that's been released and hasn't found a sperm or an egg yet, and they're just all flowing around. And so we have our bamboo, and the wind is rustling, and we have these big wooden blocks, and we clack them together, and then we have our ceremony, and we even speak names of dead people, and they come to the center, and we feed them. They might be hungry. Now, I haven't seen any food disappear. 
but I think the intention is really good. So we always have a meal at the end of the ceremony, and we always feed the Buddha and the spirits first, and then all the humans get to eat. It's a wonderful way to celebrate death, eating. Because eating is what keeps us alive. Okay. Having said that, a lot of people have died lately that I've known of. And, and one of them was a woman named Marlene. Marlene lives or lived in Seal Beach at a retirement community, Leisure World. They have 6,000, no, they actually have 7,000 people living there in a retirement community. Now, retirement community could be translated as, this is where you go to die. Or it could be translated as, this is where you go to live when you get old. And these people really enjoy their life. They have three-wheeled bicycles and flags in rainbow colors. And they wear strange clothing, and they have just a wonderful sense of uh, being alive. That, that because they've made it this far, they, they realize how special life is, that it wasn't taken from them yet. And I go there each month and to, to celebrate life. And a lot of times we talk about death. But when you get old, it's not a bad subject to talk about because people are curious about that. And when you live in Leisure World and the ambulance comes on the premises, you're sort of sad because it might mean that someone is sick or someone has died. So Marlene had brain cancer for the third time. She was in her 70s. She still had stuff to do, and she had two cats, and she didn't know if she wanted to die yet or not. And it seems we all have the choice, if we choose to accept it, as to say, well, when should I die? And, and they have papers we need to fill out when we go to the hospital saying, resuscitate me or don't resuscitate me. You know, just let me die or try to keep me alive a little longer. And so she said, the doctors have come up with a new chemical combination, a cocktail, that might give me more life. And then there would be radiation, and then I may exist a little while longer, and what do you think to me? Well, this is a tough question, because it's not me. And I said to her, you know, it's really up to you. You have a choice. Even if you have a lot of doctors and a lot of nurses and a lot of friends and relatives that want you to stay alive, you still have a choice. And she ended up dying, and so one of the women asked me to write something about death in a very Buddhist way for the Buddhist club, and so I shared that yesterday. So I'll share it with you today to give you an idea of, of how Buddhists might think about that when somebody passes. As a Buddhist, death should come as no surprise. And it's true, because what did the Buddha say right off the bat? Right out of the blocks, he said, birth, sickness, old age, and death. That's what's ahead for all of us who are lucky enough to be born. So, okay, we're all in denial, thinking it's not now, and it probably won't be us for a long time, but it could be. But the time of death is always a surprise to the one dying. 
Now, I have a friend, her name is Mary. She works in a hospice. And then one day she had five of her clients pass away. And she was surprised. And I says, well, why are you surprised, Mary? You work in a hospice. She said, well, I'm surprised because not one of them thought today was the day. <laughs> so even when you get to the hospice, if you're so lucky, you're probably going to wake up in the morning refusing to believe today is the day. It could be a blessing, though. This never seems like it's going to be the day, week, or month that will happen. I suppose it's a blessing of sorts. That being the case, every day we make a choice to have a good day and a good death. If you really understand having a good death means you have to have a good life, then having a good day leads into having a good death. Karma. Karma is the key to life and death. I am the owner of my karma. I was born because of my karma. I am dependent on my karma. I will die because of my karma. Whatever intention I have, speech or action, I shall do. Whether skillful or unskillful, the results will be mine. Talk about a lot of accountability. Talk about no grace. Talk about no forgiveness. That if we screw up, the idea is to do something so remarkably well that it shadows the time we screwed up. That we can hardly feel any of the results of our unskillful thoughts, speech, or action. In understanding the importance of karma, we can be proactive in the way we live and the way we die. Mind and body. Mind and body are of the nature to decay. I have not gone beyond decay. Mind and body are of the nature to be diseased. I have not gone beyond disease. Mind and body are of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. Can you imagine waking up every morning and saying that to yourself? How would you look at the world? How would it change the way you experience the world? It probably would allow you to be a bit more authentic and, and come to this place of Buddhist reality. Change, constant change. Youth into old age, life into death. And we're in that river. And we can't ever get out of it. We can't ever stop it. We can't ever change the flow. So in accepting that, it allows us to be at peace with the ever-evolving mind and body we call us. There is a short memorial service that, I, that we did for Marlene yesterday, and it goes like this. O Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, abiding in all directions, endowed with great compassion, endowed with foreknowledge, endowed with divine eye, endowed with love, affording protection to sentient beings, please come forth through the power of your great compassion. Please accept these offerings, both actually presented and mentally created. O compassionate ones, you who possess the wisdom of understanding, the love of compassion, the power of divine deeds, 
and of protecting the incomprehensible measure, Marlene passed from this world to the next. She is taking a great leap. The light of this world has faded for her. She has entered solitude with her karmic forces. She has gone into the great silence. She is borne away by the great ocean of birth and death. O compassionate ones, protect Marlene who is defenseless. Be to her like a mother and father. O compassionate ones, let not the force of your compassion be weak, but aid them. Forget not your ancient vows. Now, I really like the way that's worded, because what it's saying in, in one real way is that whatever you have on earth, whatever you're attached to, whatever you're using as your refuge on earth will be absolutely useless when you die. That the only refuge when you die will be the Dharma, the Sangha, and the Buddha. And, and so how would that work? How would you actually let go of all this stuff? Because all this stuff has tended to identify us, given us joy and happiness. There's nothing better than owning great stuff. Unfortunately, it always breaks and gets lost and all that stuff. <laughs> so here we are. We have the secular Buddhist who has a philosophical view, lifestyle view. We have the religious Buddhist who's saying, okay, there's going to be great fear because I'm going to be going into the mystery. And by having the Buddha with me or the Dharma as my guide, uh, the mystery may not have as much fear. And, and, I, and I thought to myself, every time we sit and meditate, what are we doing? Really, for 35, 45 minutes, what we're doing is we're letting go of all our stuff, mentally and physically, for 45 minutes. We're practicing to die. We're dying into the present moment. How does it feel to let go of that stuff for 45 minutes? Actually, in a lot of ways, it feels pretty good not to have the burden of ownership, even the ownership of who you are. And death would be letting go of everything forever. So in a way, us Buddhists are practicing to let go of everything forever by letting go of everything for 45 minutes. How's the mind states going? Mind states, they seem, in my own case, when I meditate, they seem to be pretty active. I think about a lot of stuff. I have a lot of opinions. I, 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 I see things in a certain way and surprise when other people don't. And, and then the gong rings. And I get up and go have a cup of coffee. And, and I, think, I thought to myself, in dying, is that going to change at all? Am I still going to be thinking like crazy about stuff? Probably. Probably. Until the brain starts to disintegrate. You know, because the brain will disintegrate as the dying process continues. And then I thought, are there any great maps of the brain disintegrating? And actually, there turns out to be in the Tibetan tradition, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which talks about the bardos and different rarefied states of consciousness that one experiences in dying, which one can experience in meditation as well. But back in the 60s, for all those who weren't around, there was a book written called The Psychedelic Experience by Timothy Leary, um, Ram Dass, and Ralph Metzner. 
And, and what they did is they took the Tibetan Book of the Dead and made it into an LSD manual. They made it into a manual of ego death. How do you, how do you let the ego die? And when you're dying, it's going to be pretty much that way, I think. It's going to be more about ego death than it is about physical death. That the only thing that doesn't want to die is your ego. I don't think your body knows if it's alive or dead. It knows if it's painful or pleasurable, but life and death is pretty abstract for just a body to comprehend. So now we have this idea of death, and the hardest part of death will be the ego, and letting it dissolve, never to return again. Can we experience those states of consciousness in our meditation practice? Can we experience ego death in meditation? And as it turns out, in samatha meditation, absolutely. Vipassana meditation, not so much. So samatha meditation is, is concentrating on one thing, one-pointedness. And as we concentrate on one thing, the first thing that happens is our past and our future start to dissolve into the present moment. Then, the next thing that happens is the person concentrating starts to dissolve and simply becomes the object of focus or the object of meditation. And when that happens, it is said by some that there is a great sense of pleasure and happiness as the ego dissolves into the present moment. So perhaps the fear that we have about this ego death at the time of our physical death is misplaced. That perhaps some who have meditated and have gone into these altered states of consciousness, not chemically, but through a meditation practice, are able to, to use that past experience in the, in the present moment experience of ego death. And, and if that is the case, every time we sit in meditation, we are one step closer to having a better death, to being able to find the happiness and pleasure in letting go of a body that we've dragged around for 60, 70, or 80 years. And I know a lot of us don't feel we're dragging our body around, but when you get old enough, you do drag your body around. I also noticed yesterday at Leisure World, age brings something remarkable with it. Mandatory mindfulness. You don't even have to work on it. Have you ever seen somebody who's really old and can barely walk? Every attention they have is focused on standing up and moving. And then they sit down, and then they can listen to you, and then they can chat with you. And then, wow. It's almost like nature is, is sort of pushing us in that direction, you know? And until we get there, what do we have? We have a mindfulness practice. We're practicing to be mindful. So maybe the aging process won't be as bad as we think it's going to be because we'll have less things to think about, far fewer things to remember, and a lot of things to focus on, like eating. Where did I put my glasses? Can I walk across the room? 
your world might collapse into the present moment experience of your life. That Afghanistan and Germany and Honduras will just seem like mental constructs as you look for your teeth. <laughs> you know, it might be that. So in this long journey from birth into death, in this long journey of creating mindsets that allow us to suffer less, be of service to others, and ultimately come to a place of our own demise with skill and focus, maybe that's what it's all about. Maybe all the other stuff we just make up. I was talking to somebody the other day about success. Success is, is something that is apparent on the outside. But as we meditate and get old, what we find, that success starts to go away and something else takes its place. And that's the fulfillment. That's the internal reality of success, not the external reality. So aging can be a journey, a journey of awakening, a journey of learning. And death can be the last great experience. And a lot of people, it is said, have been enlightened in their dying process. It has been that powerful and that strong that they've worked on it their whole life, just missed a few things, but that moment of death, bang. <sighs> this is pretty creepy to talk about sometimes because we're not used to hearing people talk about death and dying and getting old in a positive way. But seeing as we all have to get old if we live long enough, maybe having a positive mindset about it is a good thing. <laughs> Any questions or comments about what I've said today? Any old people here today? No? There's one. Okay. What do you do, huh? Yeah, you know, you can't force anybody to have a practice. We have, uh, I live in a meditation center. And for a long time, if you lived there with us, you had to meditate. Mandatory meditation. Didn't work at all. <laughs> You're not going to get anybody, even in a living experience, to go and meditate. Okay. My mother... Uh, she was Lutheran, you know, so she didn't meditate. And, and, and dying for her was a much different experience, I'm assuming, than will be for me. Uh, but, but what I did is I stayed in contact with her. And I talked to her every day. I actually changed my, my phone plan so I could talk to her every day. And we would talk about dumb stuff like law and order, she loved that TV show, watched it every day. And so I'd ask her about her law and order, and she would tell me what happened and who the bad guys were. And, and I would suggest that she do this or she do that or eat better or get more exercise, and, and she would kindly listen to me and reject everything I said. 
which is which was fine. But I, the feeling I had is that I was connected to her in a very special way, but I wasn't able to control her, and and tell her how I think she should die. Now, what I've come to understand about dying is that we all die in our own special, unique way. Even if four people are in a car and have a car accident and all four people died, they all died differently. 300 people in an airplane as it crashes to the ground, they all die in their own unique way. Our karma, to a great extent, determines how we're going to die. I was not able to change her karma. She was the only one that could do that. So I was with her on her journey as best I could be, but it always ended up being her journey. So could I come to a place of acceptance with that? Yes. I, I made peace with that. I encouraged her to die in the way she wanted to die or the way she thought best for her. She decided not to have any invasive procedures to see what was wrong. She decided to, to go out without knowing. Now, at first I was a little you know, put off by that. I said, don't you want to know what's wrong with you? And she said, no, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> And so she just like walked into death, you know? She wasn't screaming or yelling. She just sort of walked into death. And towards the end, she stopped eating, you know, which is one way to commit suicide. And, and it's, it was fascinating. So at, in, when all is said and done, she did it her way. And that was an example for me that it's possible. Even with all the intervention, that's available to us, we can still do it our way. So that was my insight to that. Did that make sense? Sort of? Yeah. She, she was in her 80s, and she had worked her whole life. She had four kids that never were the best kids in the world. And, and yeah, yeah, she seemed to have a, 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 a lot of acceptance with the whole thing, you know? Almost as if, okay, uh, I've done all I need to do now. Now it's time for me. Bang. Fascinating. You know, I cried a lot, you know, but that's what happens because there's a loss. But earlier I spoke about, I could still hear her, hear her voice in my head telling me to take out the trash. <laughs> so clearly. So I realized in one way she was gone, in another way she would never leave. So it's best to make peace, because <laughs> they don't go away. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah? I uh, fear the lack of control of having My mom was in a, a retirement home and was in hospice, and I was present a lot. I mean, or physically around her or spoke to her, but because she... Progressively, I mean, she was dependent on anyone else for her comfort. Yeah. She couldn't move or anything. And during that whole time, I kept saying, I don't want to ever be in that position. And um, now I worry about it. I mean, that. And it's kind of like a lot of my 
existence is that how am I going to not be like that? Which, I mean, that we're really kind of found If you do, would you let me know? Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's a dilemma because what we ultimately end up doing is, is getting, letting our control go. We have to surrender to the process. Uh, I, somebody the other day said to me, you know, you're really lucky to, to live in a meditation center. All those people can take care of you. I said, oh yeah, <laughs> good luck on that, you know. It's interesting. It's interesting. Do we, do we have the skill necessary to let other people be kind to us, to let other people help us when we can't help ourselves, to, to have gratitude, you know, for that? It, when we're so self-centered and detached from the flow, from the river, thinking, I can do it myself. As, as I started to meditate, I started to see that I was only one of the contributing factors of my life. There were 10,000 other contributing factors. I was one of them. So the idea of control is a fantasy. And, and that's hard to see through. My mother was very independent. Uh, until the day she died. She'd been married twice. She had four kids. She at one time had two jobs, was going to college to support the kids after the divorce and the blah, blah, blah. So she, she always did it her way. And in the end, even she had to surrender to the kindness of others. It, it, it's the way we start. We, you know, we start with being totally dependent. We have a few years of independence, sort of, and then we go back into dependency. It seems to be the natural arc of a life. Intellectually, to come to a place of acceptance with that is very difficult. And I don't know what the answer is, but I'm thinking that the meditation we all do may lead us into seeing our life in a different way. It might give us the wisdom and compassion necessary to let go of that control issue. Maybe. We're all going to find out. Some of us may be really good patients. Others of us may be just terrible to be around. Do you know? And I'm sure we've all seen both. Um, they will become our best teachers. Those people that we're trying to be kind to and reject it. And those people that we're trying to be kind to and accept it. They will be our best teachers in giving us a glimpse into our future if we live long enough and how we might act or react or respond skillfully. That's about all I have. Thank, thank you. Yes? them to have a different relationship with death. I mean, I don't know if there's a, a 
get a book or something that can help with that process when someone's been fearful for so long of it? Yeah, I'd say uh, get them some cats. Because cats don't last very long. 10 years, 12 years, then they die. You, you keep seeing how, you know, there's, there's so wonderful and then they die. Well, I have a dog. And my dog's 15. He's going to die. And this person says he should die. Like, he's like, cut him out of his misery. He should die. But he's not done. I know he's not done. But that's his response. It's like... Yeah. Is, is, is he an atheist? Does he have some place to go after life? Okay. Okay. Sometimes, if you're uh, too much of a realist, you see, and you look at this as all there is, and then you feed trees, you know, uh, then you sort of—it's hard to embrace death because it's the end. But if you have a religious inclination, and 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 have an afterlife story in your head. Then it's like I'm letting go of this life to have another life. Instead of saying somebody is dying, somebody is getting ready to be reborn. Different mindset. Uh, I feel strongly that there's an afterlife. But I also understand that it's an intellectual model and a story that has been put there by something or someone. But it's a pleasant story. And it, and, it, and, it, and it gives me a sense of hope that, that I will continue until I achieve nirvana, and then I'll not continue in a very special way. And so it, it lessens the impact of having to let go of everything forever to have an afterlife story. And Buddhism has plenty of them. And I'm always sad when somebody is too smart, too smart to have an afterlife story. Because I'm thinking, that's such a burden to carry. Now you're going to have to defend your position every time death comes up. And why you don't believe there's an afterlife. I was at a wedding and, and there was an atheist there. And we had the best conversation. They are really smart. They've read a lot. <laughs> I really enjoy talking to them. But in a way there was a certain sadness because they, only, they could only take it so far. And then they just had to stop. So I told him, I said, do you know where atheists go when they die? And he said, no, I don't. I said, they go to a cryogenics lab waiting for a cure. <laughs> so, so even they may have a place to go, you know. But it, it is sad. And you can't give them that afterlife story. You see, you have to... Hope, encourage, stand aside, wait for them to find one that works for them. So my mother, who was non-religious for years and years and years, became very religious towards the end. And, and she hadn't been in church in a long time, and she called the Lutheran pastor. And she found God again, and knew how to die. And, and, if, and if nothing comes out of this talk other than maybe I need to reflect on how I'm going to die. Because we don't know when and we don't oftentimes know how. The, the religious in our life will tell us how to live, rarely tell us how to die. 
But Buddhists are good at that. Buddhists like to tell people how to die because they know it's going to happen. And in learning how to die, ironically, you learn how to live in a, in a skillful way. Thank you. Yeah, that's good. Oh, yes, hi. Yeah, Robin Williams. What is the Buddhist view of suicide? It's always wrong, but sometimes they do it anyway. So, how would a, what would be an ideal way for a Buddhist to commit suicide? It would be to stop drinking water, stop eating food. There was a monk uh, who had terminal cancer who committed suicide in that way. Now, is there a karmic consequence for that? Yes. There's always a karmic consequence for taking a life, whether it's justified or not. Always a consequence. But sometimes the consequence is smaller, sometimes it's greater. So you want to proceed and have the smallest negative consequence you can in taking your own life. Unfortunately for a Buddhist, it doesn't end there. Because immediately you're reborn again. <laughs> so what did I... I posted something on Facebook saying, uh, suicide is a mistake you won't have to live with. But the word mistake it was in that. And that's... It's sad because the person may feel this is the appropriate way to end this problem. But all the people left behind may feel that wasn't the best way to do it. Is that helpful at all? Not so much. I mean, I mean it, it, if you imagine people, of course, in great pain with the cancer, I, I can see that suicide would be possibly a choice. Maybe. to reduce suffering. Uh, one second. I had that same issue with putting a cat to sleep. Should I let the cat that die naturally? Because all cats are going to die. All dogs are going to die. And so a few times I let them die naturally. And one of them had the worst death I've ever seen. It was just terrible. I felt so bad. So the next cat that was going to die, I had them put to sleep. And... In having them put to sleep, I also receive some of that negative karma because my intention, though being well, being in the right place to prevent the little cat from suffering, I still had to take his life. And I didn't personally have to take his life, but I had it initiated. So, but I was willing, as a Buddhist, to have that cat life cut short so it wouldn't have to suffer. Absolutely. And as the baby boomers now all crowd into this old age and death place, you know, my mother used to say, those death panels, I don't like them, I don't like them. They're all going to decide whether we live or die. That may be the case in the future. We may have death panels to decide whether there's enough pain and suffering to take their life or not. And I don't know if there's a right or a wrong in that, a good or a bad. I don't know. It's a tough one. Yes, be... I have a few things, actually. Um, one of them is that I think that the 
You know, I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Right. Thich Quan Duke. Our house is named after that monk who self-emulated. Now, is, is that a good thing? Did that bring attention to the plight? Yes. Did it change anything? Not so much. We're now buying t-shirts from Vietnam, communist country. Everything just keeps going on. It was a political statement more than a spiritual statement. If he hadn't achieved nirvana by the time he lit himself up, he probably is in hell right now. And, and he was willing to take that consequence to make his political statement. So there was, a, uh, there was a monk in Sri Lanka that killed himself because of animal rights, and he was protesting that animals were not being treated fairly. And I thought to myself, isn't that really dumb? Because once you kill yourself, that's sort of it. But if you're still alive, you can form coalitions, you can do advertising, you can do all sorts of stuff to help the animals. But once you're dead, you're dead. So I, I think, you know, taking your life for a political statement, martyrdom, um, it doesn't work for me. Hmm. I, I, I heard most of it, but not all of it. I'm sorry. My, my hearing's not very good. Your voice isn't very loud and there's fans going on. But um, when, I, when I think about engaged Buddhism, I, I think about people who are reducing suffering in the world. And that is the only reason they're out there. If a Buddhist was faced with a person starving and a person fasting and had to decide which one to feed, it would be the one who was starving. Because they would be the one who was suffering. So, th thank you. Yes, last question. Into the room, we like caught eyes, 
And then she, she didn't look at me again. And I, and I stood there and I stayed with there with her for two nights and I slept with her. And I felt like the only thing I could do was to just tell her to go. That it was okay. That it was okay. Yeah. That it was okay. And even though as I was saying it, I was crying and I, you know, I pretty much cry every day since, you know, just thinking I'll never be a hugger or whatnot. But I felt like that was the only thing I could do. Mm-hmm. Just tell her that it was okay to go. Yeah. And then helping you go by prayers and meditation, recitation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Best gift you can give someone who's right. about to pass. So, like, your question was, like, how do you help somebody or whatnot? I feel like that's, you know. Yeah. Just letting them know that it's okay. Yeah. It's, it's definitely part of life. Beginning and end. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Well, we're over time. Quick loving kindness meditation for all those left behind, still alive, with stuff to do and places to go. You know?